Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar for the duration doing daily coverage of World Cup 22. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham from South Florida. How are you? Doing all right, sir. In, in trying to, I, I found myself in the last couple of days like needing to get up for the World Cup again. Uh, because the the U.S. going out sort of took it out of me, but I'm like today I was in the full swing of it. I, I watched uh, the whole of Brazil uh, dismantling uh, poor South Korea. I was really into that sort of back and forth breakneck game between uh, Croatia and Japan. So uh, some some really good games today. Uh, well, I guess maybe the the South Korea Brazil game wasn't good, but the the goals and the football was good. Uh, so yeah, now I'm 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 fully back in. I'm recovered and and back up off the mat after the uh, devastating U.S. defeat. You know that's good to hear. Um, I was just telling you before we started recording, like my body hit a breaking point probably sometime yesterday, right as I was finishing my magazine story for my site off the U.S. Netherlands game. I think it's cumulative lack of sleep and respiratory stuff, but I think I have bronchitis. Um, at least it's not Jeez, COVID. I, I know I, that because I've been I, testing. I, I hope you're okay. <laughs> no, I, like I, I think I am. I'm feeling better. So basically, I went to the medical clinic at the main media center today. They took a look at me, um, and uh, they were like. Yeah, I, we think you probably do. So they gave me some antibiotics. They gave me some cough syrup, some ibuprofen. And uh, I'm already feeling a little better just a few hours later. Like it had gotten pretty bad in terms of like the tightness in my chest, tightness, pressure, feeling pretty hairy bad. Um, what would you have done if the U.S. had made? What would you? What would you have done if the U.S. had made the quarterfinal? Would you've had to like figure out a way to keep powering through it, or I, like that's how I do things. I power through. Um, yeah, it may not be the smartest thing ever, but that's sort of how I roll. Um, especially when like every day counts at the World Cup, and there's always something going on. Now I will say this: if the U.S. had gotten to the quarterfinals, there would have been a nicer, nice longer break between the round of 16 game and the quarterfinals. And, you know, like, this isn't my first rodeo. I've done eight of these on the men's side. And so, like, I've gotten sick to some extent at every tournament. Um, and it's just about trying to find a way to, like, get your work done, remember to sleep, remember to eat, um, and, and you'll be okay. The one thing that you don't do at this tournament or it's very hard to do is like to go out hard at night because it's Qatar and you're not <laughs> going to be doing that um so I, I do remember my first world cup uh with sports illustrated was in 1998 in France and I did go out pretty strong a few times early in the tournament and paid the price for that this is a this is an endurance <laughs> test uh, I'm here for 37 days. Especially when there's more. Tra I thought when you say earlier, the thing that I didn't, that you don't do at this World Cup that you used to do is, I thought you were going to say travel. Uh, like the, the, the lack of travel and sleeping in the, in, in, the same, in the same bed figured it might have helped. But I guess there, the, I have not been in that, in that pressure cooker before. So you having been there, like it, it's funny how you, you sort of say that your body can't handle it. 
which is funny because we're talking about like the pressure that these players are under and and you know they they will presumably feel something similar yeah i mean like the brazil world cup was actually the toughest one in 2014 for travel because we would have these five and six hour flights from sao paulo where the u.s was based in manaus or recife or natal and a lot of those brazilian flights would take off at like two in the morning and so it would throw you off for an entire day thereafter. And, and that was always really hard. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. I, I love covering this event, but it challenges you in a major way. Just it challenges you mentally, physically, and no, we're not playing. But, um, you know, like it was just interesting to observe how my body got me through writing my magazine story uh, on the U.S.-Netherlands game which I had, I always promise goes up at 9 a.m. Eastern. So that was at basically 5 p.m. local time yesterday. And after I, f I finished and posted it, like there's this just capitulation, involuntary <laughs> capitulation by my body and, and mind. Uh, and so it's been an interesting <laughs> 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, it, it's sort of the same thing. Like I, I, I hit a bit of all actually mine came very very early like on like day three I was like oh boy I'm getting sick like I've I've, I've only just begun uh -huh. and then uh th thankfully it wasn't too bad uh, back here I don't know what the situation is like in Qatar if everyone's getting sick but back here in the states everyone I know has either like COVID or a really bad flu like there's a lot of sickness going around right now so uh it is you will be hard pressed to avoid all that stuff there haven't been too many COVID cases I've run into here, fewer than I expected, actually. I thought there might be some outbreaks because you've got people coming in from all over the world. Um, but there has been a lot of flu, a lot of colds, quite a bit of bronchitis. Um, and that's just part of the gig. Um, but, you know, at least I have my voice, as you can tell now. Um, and let's talk about what's happened in the last two days since the U.S. was eliminated. And what we've seen is a distinctive pattern starting in the U.S. game where you had all of these upstart teams, non-traditional powers, getting to the round of 16. None of them are winning games here. And it's just a complete domination by the heavyweight teams. Brazil 4, South Korea 1. Croatia advances on penalties over Japan. France 3, Poland 1. England three, Senegal nil. And it's gonna set up some really mouthwatering matchups in the quarterfinals. And I'm excited for those. I'm excited for Argentina, Netherlands. I'm excited for England, France, and Brazil, Croatia. And I guess we'll see tomorrow if Spain and Portugal can advance. I would like to see one upstart make it. I'd like to see Morocco beat Spain, maybe. Um, I don't think that's going to happen though. And um, it makes me wonder if as much as, you know, we talked about upstart teams getting out of the groups, this just seems very chalky to me. Yeah. And, and we talked earlier and you sort of poo-pooed it, but the notion of sort of like group stage privilege, like how, I mean, and, and there are good teams that went out, Belgium went out, Germany went out, but I do think you like the bigger teams approach the group a bit differently. Japan had to give everything against uh, Germany and and against Spain in order to win those games, and then we we can't really say they ran out of gas. They they performed reasonably well in that game, and then just didn't make their penalties. So you don't want to make too much of it, but 
to me, I, I agree with you, and I would sort of love to know what that is. I do know that uh, going into the knockout round, uh, we have a podcast in the Metal Arc family called Underdogs that sort of tries to identify the best ways to, to identify uh, the teams that are underdogs that are going like what what is the sort of trend line man all these and they came on our show that mike ryan ruiz and i do called morally abhorrent and uh they basically said that the difference between these these teams is too big and that history suggests that and and they used elo the the statistical ranking as a way of saying that the gap is too big between the favor and the underdog and they actually predicted a fairly chalky round of 16 which is what we've gotten and I, I just would love to know why, because like you said, the group stage was incredibly wonky. There were great games all the time. And these games aren't even like that close until the, like Japan and Croatia. Right. I mean, Argentina, Australia went down to the end, but it sort of came from a freak goal. And then, you know, they're freaking out for the final minutes. But the games haven't even been relatively competitive. They haven't been crazy. And I would love to know why that is. Like, what is it that's different about the group stage versus the knockout round? The single elimination element that almost sharpens and focuses. You don't have to think about sort of multiple games. You're thinking about one. But even when you watch like a Premier League season or, you know, a league season in other leagues, the favorites get knocked off once in a while in single elimination competitions, in cup competitions. Like, it's not crazy to see big teams go out. And yet, for whatever reason, all six teams have found their medal and have found their better play and sort of exerted their quality. Like we talked the other night about the Netherlands and the U.S. and how the Netherlands in big moments and Greg Berhalter talked about how they have a Memphis Depay and we don't. Like that Like that notion suggests that they just have more talent and their quality shows in games that are decided by moments, which a lot of these are. And so even when Senegal has two or three good chances... They don't convert them against England. And then England get one, and Jordan Henderson finishes it, and then they're away. Like, it's 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 interesting how the shape of the game feels so much different at this stage as opposed to the group. No, you're right. And I think teams approach it differently. In the, the, the incentive system in the group stage is just different. And you can spread things out over three games, and you don't need three points from every game. And, and no team got three points from every game in the group stage this time. Um yeah, I, I thought of all this, the upstarts that had a chance to, to win their round of 16 games, I thought Japan had the best chance of anyone. And like you said, 1-1, they were ahead, gave up a nice equalizer from Perisic. And Croatia is just really tough on penalties the last several World Cups. Um, and it wasn't even really that close, but um, in that sense. And I thought the U.S. actually had a shot to advance. Uh, against the Netherlands uh, and, uh, you know, was dispatched 3-1. And frankly, I don't think Morocco is going to beat Spain. I, and this, the Switzerland-Portugal game is less, you know, less upstarty as two European teams. But um, I've always sort of thought Switzerland is underrated. I, I had them going a ways in this tournament. But... Um, in any case, it's going to set up some great quarterfinal matchups. I'm going to actually go and attend those games and write about them, which I'm excited about, because uh, I've only attended one non-U.S. game in this tournament. Um, Kylian Mbappe, I want to ask you about, because he's on five goals in four games, leading the Golden Boot race. France looks really good right now, even though Poland is not very good, the team they beat. Um what do you make of of Mbappe, and, and do you think he can keep this up, and can France keep this up? 
I think that, I mean, obviously, I think France can certainly keep it up. They're one of the most talented teams at this tournament. And the only thing that stopped us from picking them to do well is this uh, World Cup winner's curse. And you have to give huge credit to Deschamps, who, who stayed on, who stayed on, I believe, for a third World Cup cycle, and to this squad for not allowing the disease of me or the other elements that have stopped uh, previous teams' generations from getting too old. And I guess having a 19-year-old lead the last World Cup helps uh, stop you from... Or, or even, I think, like, with the Germans in 2014, we saw how some of them just sort of fell off the face of the earth because it felt like they achieved the very pinnacle that one can in this sport. Right. And for whatever reason, that hasn't stopped the French from really doing that. I think maybe turning over a few players through injury might have helped. You look at the way that that midfield is different because Conte and Pogba aren't there, but they might have been just fine with Conte and Pogba too. They're just a really good team that's more talented than most of their opponents, and they don't seem to have been placated or satisfied by having won the thing four years ago, and that is a surprise. And with Mbappe in particular, it's really interesting how much more he's doing at the World Cup than really any of the best ever generational players that have come before him in the last 20 years, um, really since, uh, as you refer to him, OG Ronaldo, really, that there, there haven't been players that have performed at the World Cup at this level that are considered the game's great. So you think of, Me I mean, obviously you start with Messi and Ronaldo, but even Neymar, Neymar hasn't lit up the World Cup before or gotten his team to a final. So it's, it's fascinating that Mbappe at this age, almost in some ways by going to Paris Saint-Germain by playing in France sort of gets to ramp up for big tournaments like you're not giving your out you're giving your all or performing to the best of your ability every single week you're saving it for Champions Leagues for Euros and for World Cups and that allows him to sort of really go for it and it's remarkable how well he plays i i continue to think that he's got to go to a Premier League giant or a Spanish giant or Bayern Munich or Juventus to really sort of prove his top, top level, you know, performances week in, week out in Europe. He doesn't have to do that in France. But as a World Cup player, which for a lot of people, particularly casuals to this sport, means more than anything else you can do in the game, it's remarkable how well he shows at this tournament. He's already got more goals than Cristiano Ronaldo at the World Cup. It's insane how well he's performing. He's only 23 years old. He is carrying a nation on his back and seems to relish it, which is sort of the opposite of what a lot of these top stars deal with. A lot of them are sort of not afraid of, but are awed or broken by the pressure that they feel. And so they don't perform at their at, at the very highest level. They, they take too much on, too much responsibility, too much running, not enough passing. But Mbappe just seems to be his cool, calm self at his very best, performing at his highest level at this tournament. And it's insane for a player of his age. Just crazy high-quality goals against Poland from Mbappe. Um, I mean, when you look at this matchup in the quarterfinals of France against England, I'm really excited by it because I do think Jude Bellingham from England is having a very good tournament, was fantastic in their win against Senegal, did some things just barreling down the midfield that we haven't seen from other players in this World Cup. And he's just 19. Uh, it's interesting talking to people who are seeing Bellingham play live for the first time, just about how good he is, how big his personality is on the field during a game, just jabbering with refs, teammates, everyone, taking over, attacking plays. 
and he's also just physically a imposing guy. Yeah. And he's just 19 and it's, it's a really intriguing test. I think for England and France to meet in the quarterfinals. And I, I think France is going to have a slight edge, but it wouldn't stun me if England wins this game. I, I, I do think both these teams are capable of winning the tournament. And as a result, I'm really excited to see what it might bring. Well, and, and that's sort of what this quarterfinal promises, right? Even uh, looking ahead to Tuesday's games, if it's Spain and Portugal, you have an Iberian derby, you have England, France, you have the Netherlands, Argentina, you have Brazil taking on Croatia, which is probably like not the best matchup on paper of the four, but... I mean, the Croatians got to the damn final last time, and, and the Croatians are going to take some killing. It's not going to be a straightforward, you you dispatch of the Croatians. They're a very difficult team to knock out of a knockout tournament. And so all four quarterfinals would set up in that scenario to look really good. But I think England-France sets up as the best of the lot. And I think it requires a little bit of a rethink about what England is, because you know a, a lot of people like to joke about what a joke England were at previous international tournaments. I remember actually covering England. One of my first soccer assignments was covering England when they did their pre-2014 World Cup warm-ups in Miami because they wanted to get used to Brazilian conditions. So they played a friendly against Ecuador and a friendly against Honduras uh, at Miami's football stadium because they wanted to familiarize themselves uh, with playing in hot and humid conditions. And so they did. And... I remember Ross Barkley got hurt. That was like the big the big story of that of that tournament because Ross Barkley was sort of the up and coming player at the time. But the thing about that team then was it was always kind of thought of as a basket case, and it really came to a fore when they lost to Iceland in the 2016 Euros. But in the last two major tournaments, Gareth Southgate has just made them a normal national team that likes coming to play together, that accentuates the talents of his best players, that doesn't have political dynamics, that doesn't get into, you know, the tabloids or have the, the, the media working against it. Gareth Southgate has sort of politically, in a weird way, as well as tactically, coached this team to just be a normal, good national team that produces good young players and is frankly spoiled for choice. Like the, the you know, they have to leave somebody out of their starting lineup that is going to be really, really good. Like when they play Foden and Saka, then Jack Grealish isn't playing. When they play, uh, you know, Henderson, Bellingham and Rice, they leave Mason Mount out of the team. Like they have to make really difficult lineup choices because they're really good. They're really talented. And so I actually do think that England can be, if not on par, then just underneath on par with France, just because the Mbappe talent takes them to another level and France have other great players like Dembele, like Griezmann, who I think has played very well at this tournament, Giroud getting the record goal, Chouameni in midfield. Their their defense has been pretty solid as well. Like They have an unbelievable collection of players. And so I do think that England can give them a, a genuine goal, but that requires that you no longer think of them as, oh, they just choke. They're, they're a national team that, that never lives up to expectations. I actually think in the last two tournaments, they have lived up to expectations. And that is that is a departure, and I think worthy of our respect. Wasn't expecting to hear Ross Barkley's name in this podcast, so <laughs> thanks for throwing that out there. Um, <laughs> but I, it's, it is interesting, I, I, I think, just with, with England and France. I actually think it's awful what happened to Raheem Sterling that he had to leave temporarily England's camp because there was a burglary at his home in London. And at the same time, 
I I kind of think Phil Foden's more dangerous right now than Raheem Sterling. Um, and and I, I think we'll probably see Phil Foden start again against France. Um, I like Mason Mount as a player, but I think Jordan Henderson's been better in this tournament. Uh, and it's nice for Gareth Southgate to have those options to choose from. Um, but, you know, this is, that's a heavyweight battle, and I'm just very excited to see it. The Argentina-Netherlands game, I think a lot of people who've been watching the game for a while are going to think back to the 98 quarterfinal between Argentina and the Netherlands with the amazing Bergkamp goal. Uh, there was a lot going on in that game. And it's a weird one because I don't want to sound disrespectful of this Dutch team. They beat the U.S. 3-1. to one. Uh, I still don't think they're as good as most Dutch teams I've seen in the past. And and yet, at the same time, I don't think this Argentina team is quite as good as I was expecting. They're playing better in the last couple of games. And there there does seem to be a bit more of teamwork in the attack and not just relying on Messi to do something individual. Um, but I feel like neither one of these teams is as good as France or England. Is that off base? I, I agree. I think Argentina are a team that's still talked about as sort of one of the, 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 the very biggest favorites, but that's not really what I've seen. And I mean, to, to some extent, I think ever since the Saudi Arabia game, when things just got out of control for five minutes and they never bounced back, I would say from a defensive point of view, they have been much better. They sort of exercised their control of the game by having more of the ball, by being more controlling, and they're they're more difficult to play against, I think, than previous Argentina teams. I think that's kind of their defining quality under Scaloni is that, yeah, they might not be brilliant going forward, but they can win moments because they have Messi, they have, uh, in theory, Lautaro Martinez, although he hasn't played well at this tournament, but Alvarez and Di Maria and all these players, in theory, can win moments. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't... I've been wowed by Argentina. And up until that Messi goal uh, against Australia, I don't think they were very good. And so I think that, for me, leaves a, a, a game where I think it's going to be, you know, when <laughs> I, I always enjoy when um, when games are boring, they're described as tactical. Uh, I think this game is going to be a, a very tactical game. It's not going to be very interesting. I don't think both teams are going to go flying at each other. I think these are going to be two teams that are going to really struggle to find ways through. And it's going to, again, come down to moments. And that's why people might pick Argentina because Messi has been in control of some of these moments. He has been pulling the strings and and creating chances and getting good strikes away. And it feels like a breakout game could potentially be on for him. He could have had like a hat-trick of assists for Martinez in the last 10 minutes alone against Australia. There's that chance for him to, to break the game open. And the Netherlands, I don't think, have as good of players in that respect as Argentina does. That being said, we know that Louis van Gaal is a brilliant manager, especially at the World Cup with the Netherlands. We know they can put together a game plan to negate Argentina and figure out the best ways to accentuate the qualities of his players. And you have to give him all kinds of credit for what he did against the U.S. And the Netherlands absolutely stand a chance. But I think it's going to be a game decided on fine margins. And when that's the case, I would slightly favor Argentina in that respect. Part of me is not trying to get ahead of myself because I would love to see an Argentina-Brazil semifinal. And it would just be off the charts to be in that stadium. Um, Brazil made a statement tonight, right? So 4-0 at half basically shut things down in the second half against the Koreans. But like when Brazil was on in the first half, it was beautiful to watch. And probably my f favorite sort of offensive display of this tournament, just the, the number of goals, the quality of the goals, the teamwork involved in producing the goals. 
And Richarlison is my favorite player in Brazil. It is, it is undisputed now. Um, he's done some amazing things in this tournament. Maybe the two best goals of the tournament now have been scored by Richarlison. Um, and on the one he had tonight, he was messing around like on the sequence, that, the scoring sequence. You know, he was almost doing the old seal dribble from Curlon of like keeping the ball on just on his head like three or four times. And the poor Korean guy couldn't even get to it. And then the ball comes down, he controls it and does a wonderful one too. And like, it took me a while to realize the pass, the amazing pass was from Thiago Silva, a center back. Was it? I, I, I thought it was from Casemiro. I, 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 I must have mistaken it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it was, you're right. It, it, it was from Thiago Silva. My apologies. Uh, but yeah, like, honestly, this is the first time and I, I tried to, I, I'm going through it and I just don't have the context for some of these performance. It's the Brazil from the commercials. Like it, it's what, <laughs> like when I was, when I was a kid before the 2006 world cup and I remember the Nike commercials that was, it was the, I remember the whole Jogo Bonito campaign and I didn't know who the guy was on the screen at the time. I realized now it was Eric Cantona, uh, like, you know, talking you through the street game and Brazil were sort of the team to be featured. It was like, Brazil. And like, it was sort of like this, this, cl- this team with this mystique and this, they play the game better than everybody else. And honestly, ever since I started watching the game, I don't think I've ever seen that kind of performance from Brazil at this level of the World Cup like just sort of rip a team apart and so clearly be the better team and the more skilled team and the team with patterns and skill and flair and the dancing and all that stuff. Uh, I, I, I always feel weird saying the, the, the manager's name because it's sort of, it's just Cheech. Cheech, like the, 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 way, the way that he like, put, like has built this team over the qualifying cycle for 18 and the last four years has this team peaking right now. They are coming together and playing free-flowing Brazilian, uniquely Brazilian, unique to that yellow shirt football that's just like, like gather your friends and say, hey, you want to watch soccer? You want to see what like this sport is at, the, at its highest level? Normally I'd say, watch the Champions League. But at this tournament, you can say, put Brazil on. Like Brazil are living up to the hype at this tournament, or at least they did on this night. And I don't know if they're going to do it in the next round when they play Croatia, because it's hard to sort of toy with a team like that that's of the quality of Croatia. But it was great to just see like, hey man, if you want to know what this sport looks like at, at its very finest, put put on Brazil's opening 45 minutes against South Korea. I'm I'm going to be telling people that for years. It was amazing. And just the, the the quality of the goals, every single one was terrific. First one you had Rafinha just barreling down the right side, hits a, a, a cross that actually misses Neymar, but then goes to a wide open Vinicius Jr. who finishes. And he, he sat over it for a long time before shooting. I was like, are you ever going to shoot, man? And <laughs> finished it perfectly. Um, it reminded me is it kind of, of the U.S. goals conceded against the Netherlands. Cutback pass, guys wide open on the on the back post, and you know in that part of the penalty area. Um, and then, obviously, we talked about the Richarlison goal, and then the one where Vini Jr. lobs it, sort of lifts it over the defenders right to Lucas Paqueta, and he finishes it really well. And it was just. So awesome to see. Of course, Roy Keane has reigned on the parade of the Brazilians by complaining I love, I love that they were this. dancing I love too this. much. 
<laughs> they, oh, their coach was dancing with them. You know, they, they, should, they could have danced just once, but that was excessive. I love that. Like that, like, I think Roy Keane, like deep down inside, knows exactly what he's doing. Like he, he, is, say, he is saying that with an internal smile in his face. He's, he's elbowing, like, look, I'm the curmudgeon. I'm going to play my role right now on British television. Of course Roy Keane say that. Like, honestly, I would be disappointed if he didn't say that. I would be disappointed if Roy, if Roy Keane came on at halftime in the ITV studio and said, wow, the dancing was beautiful. Look at them in expressing themselves. Look, man, Roy Keane is about playing, playing soccer and two foot challenging someone. He's not about dancing on the field. I will say, I will say this. If the opponent had not been South Korea, but rather Uruguay, who thought they were going to face Brazil in this game, and the Brazilians had danced that much, you would have seen some two-footed tackles come in from the Uruguayans. <laughs> Honestly, on that Richarlison third goal, and later in the game, I think it was Rafinha had a moment where he was sort of like turning and turning and turning and turning, and, and like the Brazilians were turning on the flare. There was a bit of me watching the game going, God, if I were a Korean defender, I'd kick someone right now. I'd kick someone. I'd kick lumps out of someone. Like Neymar did one skill move. It was in the area. I would have given away a penalty, but God, I just would have wanted to have kicked him so bad. Like there is like that sort of aggressive streak that for whatever reason comes out in soccer where you're just like, God, like it, you, you can't let someone show you up like this but what can you do with brazil other than just stand and applaud yeah and you know i don't know if brazil is going to win this tournament but when they won in 94 they were a much more conservative team and they were sort of marked by guys like dunga in the central midfield you know who was a total hard man and I don't, the 98 team, he was still on, but had a bit more flair. Like that was Ronaldo at the height of his powers. And, you know, there were other guys in that team. And even the 2002 Brazil champions, um, you know, that was Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, like pretty classic. Like the 94 team, I think, stood out for being uh, too hard, man. Um, you know, if you talk to Brazilians, the 1982 World Cup team, which did not win, is their favorite, like just in terms of the mo most shining example of Brazilianness that they've ever had. And I think to some extent their fans long for that. And I don't think I would say this Brazil team is exactly like 82, but there are elements of 82 in what we saw tonight. And I just hope we continue to see them. You know, Croatia, I think, is going to be a more difficult opponent. But I also think Brazil's going to win that game. Agreed. And, and to your point about, like, the style, it's really hard to... I mean, we talked about this before. It's hard to create at international level. For as good as the players have always been, it's hard to, like... Managers always tend to like want to figure out their defense first and their solidity first because that's the easiest thing to create and with Brazil I imagine the mentality for most managers including Dunga himself has been look man we've got so many good attackers like we just need to be worried about being solid and they'll just go do their thing whereas Chiche has actually given thought to how this team is going to attack use qualifying to build the patterns and and has figured out a way to integrate all of the talents into the team at the same time. We kind of saw them play, frankly, in the way that Pep City does. If you look at the way that the shape plays out, and Stu Holden, I thought, did a good job pointing this out on the Fox broadcast, where it's the, you know, we play a right back who's pretty defensive, and, a, and the other fullback will sort of move into midfield. And so when they have the ball... It's, you know, Thiago Silva, Marquinhos are in the defense. Adar Militao steps back with them. Alexandro moves in the midfield next to Casemiro, and you're sort of playing 3-2-5 and allowing five attackers to go do their thing, and they've provided a structure 
to attack when normally the structure has been to defend. And I actually think that Brazil... Not being the Brazil from the commercials has always come down to management. They're, the the managers down the years have never really allowed them to express themselves in that way. Like you said, in 94, I think it was the case in 2014. And I think in 2018, they were starting to come online, but they haven't figured it out to the degree that they have now. Playing in Copa Americas, playing in World Cup qualifying, they have built the way they want to attack. And honestly, the surprise that we didn't see it sooner from Brazil at this World Cup. I thought in the group stage, they never really hit the gear that they hit today against South Korea, but when they hit it, it was magnificent. Again, Brazil are, for me, the team with the mystique, the team that, you know, are, are this vaunted... Like, I, I remember I, the first ever game I did with Ray Hudson was a World Cup qualifying game in the cycle of 2018, and I, I had like had a few conversations with him, but I never like actually sat next to him and done a game. And it was a Brazil game. I think I think they were playing Paraguay. And there was a moment where Brazil were sort of turning on the style. It was just when Chicha had, had taken over. And uh, at one point, Ray shouted in the in the commentary, "These yellow shirts can play one twos in a phone booth." And like it was it was like just like wonderful to watch them express themselves in that way. And it's always happened in in, in bursts, but never over the course of forty five minutes like we saw. On Monday, it was magnificent to watch. I, I, I was like, just sort of at halftime. I was like, God, like in some ways, it feels cruel that they have to play a second half. Let's just let this first half performance stand on its own uh, because it was just so wonderful to watch. Yeah, um, I'm fired up that we might uh, see Brazil being truly Brazil here. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about with the U.S. men's national team that we didn't talk about two nights ago? I do think that you know some of the aftermath has been really interesting. I I listened to as many podcasts as I could uh, diagnosing this thing, and I I've thought a lot about what this means for 2026. Um, I think a lot of benchmarks are going to be set between now and then, um, but. I, you know, get, get, got to get to a semifinal, got to get to a final, got to got to win the thing. Um, ultimately, what this this next four years is about, because in some ways, I, and I, I heard, uh, I, I read you were you were talking about this about wanting the U.S. to get into Copa America in 2024, perhaps even host it as a as a dry run, it, maybe even create a tournament in 2025 to 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 get something ready. I think that the, the the challenge of the next four years is what is the evolution of the style and what is the evolution of the player pool? Can you develop uh, that, that depth in behind the current crop of players? And how close can you get to the very biggest nations in the world? And how can you measure that over the course of the next four years? Because it's going to be very difficult with the European Nations League with the Euros in 2024 to schedule top-level games against top-level European opposition. It just is going to be really hard to do so. So how do you measure yourself? And I think, how does the American public go into that go into that game? I, I, I received a tweet today during the Brazil game. Somebody just sort of asked me, hey, how, how can the Americans play like that? And it's just, it, you, you don't just, you don't wake up one morning and decide to play like the Brazilians. Like, it, you, you are so generationally far away. And that is sort of a thing that I, I, I was humbled a little bit over the course of the last 48 hours because I thought the U.S. had a chance against the Netherlands. And I thought their talent level and the way that they played is like, God, they can, they can go toe-to-toe with the very biggest teams. And they couldn't. They couldn't over the course of, of, of seven games of the World Cup. Not that they were going to get to the final, but you have to be able to produce this every game. And it not seem like such an exertion, such a, we left it all on the field. Like there's a level of ease that the U.S. sort of have to do this with going forward, which they don't have the luxury of having right now. It's really hard for them to play like they did in the group stage and get through. 
they they sort of have to do with more ease and continue to evolve and be more natural and be sort of more creative and improvisational in the final third, which I think is a big target for a lot of these attackers, Reyna and Aronson and Pulisic and Wea. How can you be do your part to create more? It's a bigger job on the central midfielders, McKenney and Musa in particular, since they play more advanced positions. How do you help create more for the team? Because creation does not come naturally to this team. And so I, I've been thinking a lot about what the next three and a half years look like, both from a choosing the manager standpoint, but how this nation evolves as a footballing nation over that period so that come 2026 there is more of a feeling that the u.s is on level pegging with some of these bigger teams to answer the text from your friend i would suggest that even if the u.s does get to a point on the men's side where they're going on deep runs in the world cup as soon as 2026 it's going to look more like germany than like brazil yeah right like germany has really good technical players and some real individual talents. You see like a Musiala here uh, in this tournament. And a real tactical uh, advancement as well. Like they're, they're incredibly astute tactically. Yeah. Right. But that's what the U.S., if it's going to be a world power in the sport on the men's side, is going to look like eventually. I don't see the U.S. playing like Brazil did tonight. It's no. just a very cultural thing that every other country in the world has been unable to reproduce. Yeah, and and it's it's not an imp- it's a cultural thing. It starts from when you first kick a ball that's made out of rags and playing uh, 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 Amin Al-Hassan, who, who works with us at Metal Ark and is from Sudan, but has a huge uh, uh, affinity for Brazil, sort of talked about like the, the cultural elements of growing up playing soccer in Brazil and the, the, the positions you find yourself in and how everything is sort of like, all right, let's go play. Like like everything in, in your in the daily life of children is how do we go play and like it doesn't have to be on you know AYSO field that has perfectly measured out dimensions and and you know freshly cut grass and fresh new uniforms and and you know goal nets and all that stuff. It's like no man, let's let's go get a ball and play in the street if we have to or play five aside on a dirt patch somewhere. That's just a, that's a culture that the U.S. can simply never have um, unless you know like you unless soccer wrestles away the imagination of children in inner cities from the age of five which is going to be really difficult because football and basketball are immensely popular in our country but like culturally the way that brazil goes about every footballer having a, a an extremely high level of improvisation and technical ability is almost impossible to recreate in the united states good stuff chris thank you Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.